Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. As our times are darkened by destruction and extinction, there remains a primordial joy at the root of our relationship with the earth, encounters with the beauty and magic of all that surrounds us, the sprouting of seeds, the grace of rain, the concert of birdsong, invite us back into conscious kinship and allow us to dissolve into the oneness of the living world. To mark the beginning of England's nightingale season, we are revisiting my conversation with acclaimed folk singer, conservationist, and song collector, Sam Lee, who each spring steps into the forest to sing with these beloved birds. In this interview, Sam reflects on the ancient musical kinship between humans and nightingales, melodies shared and silences exchanged, and the parallels between folk music and bird song that embodies a deep connection to place. Finding a re-enchantment with the earth through his practice, Sam speaks of the great importance of listening. And as Britain's nightingale population declines, a hope that music might offer the bird a path back into cultural consciousness. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you, Emmanuel, for having me. So I spent you know, the last week or so kind of immersed in your work reading your new book, The Nightingale, listening to your albums and some of the remarkable recordings uh, you've done singing with nightingales. And I was really struck by the relationship and parallels between folk music and birdsong, both in your work, but also more broadly in the deep connection to place and landscapes they both embody. And this is something you write about. So I was curious to start our conversation today by asking how you first came to experience this relationship between folk music and birdsong, um, one that uh, ultimately led you into such a unique relationship with the nightingale. The, the nightingale was not the first bird, um, though, like many birds, actually. I, I come from a, a, a nature study background, um, growing up on a, a wonderful organization similar to a sort of one of the the summer camps that you'd have out in the states a very alternative left-wing radical organization called forest school camps that that um enabled a, a unique way for children and then me as an adult as a staff member to grow up in a, in a in a playful very community orientated but also ecologically minded yeah, relationship with, with nature that allowed me to grow a confidence in my being there, but also a confidence in myself. And it went hand in hand with song. Because the campfire singing tradition there was prolific, like nowhere else I've ever come across. Hundreds of songs, many folk songs, many of the American classic folk songs, but all of a large proportion of traditional repertoire that spoke from that point of view of of our of our elders our ancestors in the way that folk songs do so beautifully which is to speak quite open-heartedly about our adoration of nature and within that recitation and the repetition of melody over and over again verse after verse allowed me as a child and growing up to see the natural world through many eyes and many stories and story being the most you know, important part of, of our being in this world and in nature. So I, it was sort of distilled in me from an early age. And in those songs, birds seem to appear everywhere, almost more prolifically than maybe one would have been aware just listening out to the, the sound world around. I befriended them, maybe before I'd even heard them. The nightingale I'd heard through folk song long before I got the opportunity to hear one. And, and the same with trees and, and what those trees and what those birds meant to those characters in those songs and giving a sense of an older wisdom that maybe I had a, an inclination towards. You said that, you know, after your first encounter with a nightingale, 
you were reduced childlike, and I'm quoting you here, to, to a state of wonderment, grinning inanely and transported through deep time, deep song, and deep earth. Um, that, that sounds like quite a transformative experience. Uh, could, you, could you share your first encounter with the Nightingale, what that was like for you? There is a beautiful story around it. I was taken down with friends of mine and, and uh, a pregnant, uh, full-term mother who we heard the birds sing. And um, yes, I went through this kind of, you know, giddy, like like my first kiss. <laughs> I think of it like that sense of, wow, I, I want this again. And the, the story of the, the mother that she went into labor that night and, and gave birth to her second child, Tristan um, and then she and her daughter um, were both killed in, a, in an accident in Kenya which was their home although this we met in, in England they were killed only six months later and instantly that moment of exquisiteness of this bird this new love affair was coated in um, a, a, a tragic veil um, and never again have I heard the nightingale and not thought of Polly and Sita and mother and daughter but at the same time, what it revealed to me was that all the while I've been singing these folk songs with a nightingale here and a nightingale there or a lark here or a turtle dove there, what I was doing by hearing that bird and really in, in such a, you know, in a ceremonial way, that it was, an, it was such a, a marked journey to go and meet the bird and be in his presence. What I was experiencing was the voice that every one of the folk singers who for hundreds of years had sung that song and whose shoulders I stand on, I was experiencing that quality of excitement that they had felt when they heard their nightingale sing, you know, 300 years ago, a thousand years ago, however old these songs are, and some of them go back a very long time. And I was suddenly able to inhabit the place of those ancestral singers in a way that I hadn't. And I realized that the more I stepped into those stories in nature, the more I understood the songs. And the more I heard, understood the songs, the more I understood what my human relationship with nature was, that they were my vocabulary and they were my entry point into the natural world in a way that made sense to me as a part of the natural world, but also as, as a human teller of story and of nature's song. I mean, hearing you describe that sounds somewhat spiritual in a certain way, I guess. It was, you know, it really captured you on, on multiple levels. And, and that's something I, I really felt in your describing some of these experiences in your book. And there's a wonderful line that stayed with me and you describe the nightingale in this way and its, its influence on you. This tiny bird led me across a threshold and introduced me to a way of being in nature that I had never reckoned with. The experience was both a meditation on stillness, yet also a provocation to dance with abandon. That's, that's very beautiful. <laughs> I, I think maybe some context is really important here because the bird doesn't exist in America. There are birds called nightingales, but it, it's, a, it's a very much a European and Eurasian bird. And he sings his courtship song, as a night song, you know, as the Nachtigall, the night wind, the night voice. And he'll sing in that silence all night from 11 p.m. through till dawn at four or five o'clock in the morning. Unrelenting. It's a persistent, extraordinary, improvised, constantly new, but constantly taking from his 1,500 different sounds and 250 repertoire phrases. Um, but always cycling something, a new combination. And within that musicality and ecstaticness and, and energetic explosions, often in the coldness of the night, in the, in the stillness of the night. And I recognize another artist uh, who dared into this space in a way that the loneliness of an unaccompanied folk singer, or as I was before I did music as a dancer, that I was, I was so energized and like I had permission to be an expressive person because if a nightingale can do it out of pure innate call, the call of nature for that nightingale to sing, it called in me that opportunity to express.
your your I guess project, this ongoing project that you have um, of singing with nightingales, as 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 far as I understand it, it started by your desire to honor um, uh, an encounter with a cellist and a nightingale earlier on in the history of, of recorded music and radio in, in 1924 with this um, very famous um, British cellist, Beatrice Harrison. I wonder, I wonder if you could share that story and, and, and talk a little bit about Beatrice and what she did. Mm, absolutely. She's a, she's a very incredible woman. I should kind of contextualize her by saying she, she was around in the 1920s, which is relatively modern in, in the history of where music and nightingales have existed. There's a long international legacy of that, but she is our British kind of apocryphal tale of where the nightingale came into pop popular consciousness. And it happened because as a as a as a darling society character. She was the muse of Elgar. She played the, the premiere of Elgar's cello concerto. She friends with royalty. She was real out there on the scene and real pioneer of women's uh, rights as well. And she convinced the BBC much against their judgment to try out some new broadcasting equipment that would allow microphones to be small enough to take outside of the studio. And so on the 19th of May, um, 1924, the, the BBC, who were brand new at that point and internationally uh, broadcasting, broke into one of their concerts and stopped to say, we have a, a broadcast from the thicket of her back garden down south of London. Where a mile of cable linking up to the telephone exchanged brought the song of the nightingale singing that night with her on her cello, improvising and playing some pieces. And it was a, it was a viral sensation, you know, it was the, the ultimate first in that kind of yeah, media experience that traveled around the world. Millions of people listened to it. 50,000 people wrote letters into the BBC to say, please, can we have more? And she became this figure of this, the lady of the nightingales and every year she did this broadcast and she sold millions of records and she traveled the world and would play the Carnegie Hall several times a year and invite all the Americans to come to her home in Oxford and have tea with her and listen to her nightingale which they did in the thousands literally you know tankers of humans came over across the sea to hear her nightingale she really brought that kind of popular appreciation and did a lot in terms of the preservation of, of birds and, you know, the popularization of the Royal Society, protection of birds, our big charity. So she's a, she's a formidable figure, but what she did was bring art and the nightingale together. And is that what in, inspired you as kind of the confluence of, of your love of, of birds and, and uh, nature and then hearing somebody who had found a way to be in relationship with them as a, as a musician that inspired you? I wish it was as, as obvious as that. No, not at all. I, I'd been listening to Nightingales every year as a kind of pilgrimage to hear them. I got this lucky commission because BBC had completely missed their 90th anniversary of this seminal event. And uh, I wrote an email to the man at the BBC, as you do, going, uh, can, I, uh, can I make a little documentary about this? And they were like, heck, yeah. I had 48 hours notice to go and make it. It was the fastest turnaround of BBC history, I think. And, um, and I did, and I made this little documentary. And it was going out there to sing a song with the birds in homage to her that I discovered that actually the birds sang back. And that was the big threshold for me, really the most important one, which was not just the discovery, but realizing the birds and me and other musicians could collaborate, that the birds change their key and their frequencies and their decoration to ad adapt to your music. And that blew me away because I'd only ever been a silent participant, you know, in that, in the, a listener. Never would I sing with the great master, you know, interrupt. But lo and behold, he invited me in. And that led to this kind of, well, if I can do this on my own, maybe I could get an audience <laughs> to come and experience this too. This is nature connection elixir. This is the, I call it the kind of shot up the arm. 
like the adrenaline hit of hearing musicians and birds in in collaboration is it's a it's a sensation like no others and and it's quite a transformative experience so i i've it, i've created this sort of concert but i think of it more as a ceremony for the birds that allows people to have an experience with nature that we in england don't often have the permission to have because of the country we live in and the laws and the way we are and our relationship to land it opens up all those boundaries and and other people's thresholds and comfort zones in a very powerful way well let's take a listen to that uh recording uh, of you singing with nightingales this is um the tan yard side Thank you. 
I'll take that boy inside and I'll roll him in my very own I'm by the time outside And I will him in my very own I just find that recording very remarkable. Sam, I mean, I've listened to it several times now and it and it, it really hits hits me very deeply um, each time. In fact, I think more so each time. You know, and it just feels very clear that there's a relationship that you and the other musicians that you're there with um, stepped into w- with the Nightingale. And one thing really struck me that you wrote about in your book was that... Um, you feel that nightingales have sung with humans for millennia and that you're convinced that this ability for musical kinship that was so beautifully just displayed in that recording, you know, evolved side by side, the nightingale and, and the human, and that there is an epigenetic imprint of their song upon our ancestors. That is undeniable. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's appreciate listening to that recording which I, I try not to because uh particularly now because we're recording this in the middle of nightingale season and there's this almost like a you know sacredness of not going into that space but you know if there was ever a teacher of what trance is the nightingale is is one to reveal that the footprints i'm walking in in hearing that bird strips away that sense of time that bird is exactly the same as the bird that sang at the time of the Lascaux or Chauvet caves. In fact, they would have been those nightingales singing outside those caves for the whole of spring and summer. And likewise, that the song that I'm singing, why I love singing the folk songs, is able to bring those ancestors into my, into my circle, into our circle, that I feel I'm part of something very ancient. Um, and there is no question and there's nothing reenacting about it or staged. It's just, I'm doing it the way it is. And in my research, I've met many different communities, traditional song communities and master musicians who've learned from the Nightingales as their teaching has dictated. And in many ways, you know, living in England with a very strange secularity within our folk repertoire and where it sits has allowed me to, yeah, to be quite playful, but also to explore what a um, what a sacred spiritual form of uh, practice might be with with these birds and how they might enable a reenchantment. You know, I I feel like nature is my spiritual leader in this respect and and the nightingale is my imam at the at the top of that that tower calling the prayer out you are not only a folk musician and a communer with nightingales but you're a song collector and you've spent many, many years traveling around the UK, England, Scotland, Ireland, spending time and collecting and recording and learning songs 
from, uh, as far as I understand it, uh, singers who are often the last in their line of stewarding that tradition of oral storytelling, oral communing, oral relationship with the land. Um, and that many of those uh, singers are, are, are really the last to hold that knowledge. Yeah, it, it it feels very connected to your language keepers project that we have the we have the same the same situation. Almost actually, very much in a language, not just a song language, but in uh, that there are many indigenous languages and in, have been many indigenous languages in, within Great Britain, and many of the last the the most um, sort of eroded and and vulnerable ones are those of the gypsy traveller community who are our indigenous people. They are our First Nations to a certain extent, the Irish travellers, the Scots travellers, the English gypsies, all have their own language. Some of those are Scots traveller, the cant is is almost extinct. The Irish cant and gammon um, is is also, you know, disappearing fast. The Romany is holding on strong uh, amongst the communities and is more more widely kept. But those those elders of those communities who were much ignored by the folk music world. You know, it took people like Alan Lomax actually to come over and pay the the attention to them that only a few of the British song collectors in the 1950s and 60s were were making the effort to to document. Um, and I was quite lucky that actually Lomax's British companion, Peter Kennedy, uh, was in, well, in his 80s and me in my early 20s became my, my, my teacher and uh, for a short while and introduced me to that repertoire um, and revealed to me that there might actually still be elders who still sang the songs. Uh, and by by chance, by playing me a recording of a 10-year-old girl singing a folk song who was a gypsy girl, and I knew that, well, if she was 10 years old in 1955, she'll probably still be alive. And so I went out and started searching for elders who had these songs, and, and none of them had ever been recorded or documented and none of them knew that other people sang these songs. They just thought they were their family songs. They didn't realize that these were the, the as we call it, the cash in the attic, the, you know, the heirlooms that actually were great, vast cultural value. Um, and I recorded several hundred of them. In fact, one of the ones that I first met, Stanley Robertson, apprenticed me as, uh, who comes from the great Scottish traveler balladeer tradition, which is a much kind of mightier, purer and more... Um, psychic and spiritual lineage immensely mysterious and uh shrouded in yeah in all sorts of ways that we could go into in much depth another time but um he was my he was my great teacher and taught me what that spiritual connection to the songs was and took me to the places the birthplaces of the songs and that really kind of yeah, that drove me to the, that I needed to meet these people before they died, before they passed on, before those songs went with them as well. And the songs were critical in that, but actually it was about an exchange of of knowledge and of humanity that these people couldn't go to their grave with these songs without having been told that they were important and they were that and and to actually for me to give thanks to them for for having carried them all this way. Um, and the recording them and documenting them and the putting the archive up online, the Song Collector's Archive, was a technical form of thanks. But really, for me, it's it was the the eye-to-eye, ear-to-ear and heart-to-heart experience of transmission, of that oral transmission in the ancient way of me receiving those songs to say, I will I'll do what I can to look after them and I will take them into this era in as best way that I know how. Um, and I haven't done always the best, but I'm I'm always trying. Is, is there a song that you learned from one of these um, wisdom holders of, of this oral tradition that you'd like to share with us? I mean, there's hundreds. <laughs> I'd like to share them all, please, but not maybe all at once of this podcast. Um, ah, um, I have to sing one from Stanley Robertson because he really is the my my teacher and 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 the one I'm most thankful for. And I'm go- I will sing for you a song that was his lucky song. It's called My Oshin, which is the traveler language for my old shoes, um, about a love affair that falls apart and that person fitted him, the protagonist, like a pair of old shoes that was so comfortable. And she's gone to the church to get married to another young man. Um, 
So I'll do, I'll do, I'll maybe not the whole thing because it's a long song, but I'll do a couple, two or three verses. I saw my lovely Anne away to the church go. Gold rings on her fingers, white gloves on her hand. She's gone and left me and gone all alone. She is gone to get wed with another young man. And I said, my lovely Anne, just bide a wee while, for you have been. So falsely beguiled You've gone and left me For another young man For you're only my old shoes And you've got her for the ladies and the gentlemen came inquiring on me how many blackberries grow in the salt sea. And I gave my reply with a tear in my eye As many ships sail in the forest Really beautiful. Um, it's almost like um, there is like, you know, we asked about this epigenetic imprint that was present within in birds and humans. I mean, one thing that always strikes me when I hear um, folk music that has been passed down, you know, directly or languages that have been passed down directly, that even for the listener who is maybe not directly connected there, you feel the presence of the people behind the, the song going back. Um, and it's very beautiful. Um, I, would, I wanted to respond to that, actually, because there is a word for this um, that Stanley, Stanley's family, the Robertson clan, had for, for that quality of singing and the thing they were all trying to achieve. And he, he inherited it from his aunt, the, the legendary Jeannie Robertson that Alan Lomax recorded and released a wonderful album of her songs. And Jeannie and the Robertsons called it the Mizey. The Mizey. And the Mizey's like, there's also the Konich in, the, in other traveller tongues and the Irish and Duende, you know, Lorca's in search of Duende. And Stanley would always speak that when you sang, you called in the Mizey, you called in the Mizey, you called, the songs didn't exist inside you. They were outside you and you breathed them in, you activated them. And when you had the Mizey inside you, the ancestors would appear. And, and when Stanley sung and his family sung, you knew that the ghosts of his ancestors, they were all there sitting next to him judging him you know poking fun laughing playfully and and seriously and and holding him to account of that of the integrity of that singing but it's also that that was their way of infiltrating and bleeding into the listener and casting that spell <laughs> go build you go build you log cabin on a mountain so high and hear them feather warbirds yell as they go screaming by 
guess going back to the Nightingales, you've spoken about their relationship to you personally as kind of a gateway to reconnecting on a much deeper level to the natural world and specifically to the the healing power of nature. You wrote about this in your book. Um, and I, and I, I loved you described the, the Nightingales as the head surgeon in this practice of healing for you, but I think you're speaking also more broadly um, for, for us collectively. Mm. They have a particular way of opening you up. And, you know, there are a few creatures that can do that. And they're not the only one. I found an agency with them that allows me to, to do that work and to bring that work to others. The healing is different for every person because we all bring our own sickness, our own pathologies and our own yeah and our own yeah problems and you've we see that in the the legacy of poetry and prose and folk song of how the nightingale has appeared always in this place of wisdom keeper yeah of of un- unlocker uh, they unlock you and they rinse through you because they really you know that's the power of being and, and you can hear it a little bit on that recording but they they sing at 90 decibels they are so loud. It's like being next to the speaker in the nightclub. You know, you've, your eardrums thrum and vibe, throb to their sound and you're, you feel it inside your heart, this quivering sensation as the, the frequencies kind of, you know, pass through you. That's a gift. Sometimes you have to work very hard to have those palpable experiences of, of cleansing, of, of communion with nature. And then you bring the nightingale in, and it's just like womp. <laughs> you know, they knock, knock you out. And every night, I'm there with my audiences, and it's no more than about thirty-five people a night for sensitivity reasons. And every night, there's somebody who's there, weeping. You know, absolutely weeping. And and I get the letters and messages back from people going, you know, I've left my job, I've left my husband. I, you know, that's it. I'm no longer on that path. I've, I've, you know, it's it does have a lot of change making in it. Mm, it has a. a- I guess you could say a mystical quality to it, that power of, of what it brings. And you spoke about that, that there's a, a sense of dissolving that can be present there in that experience. Um, uh, you can leave your state of mind and become uh, unraveled and then reconstituted, realigned, affirmed and renewed. Would, would, would you say they're, they're mystical, the experiences you've had with nightingales? There's a whole spectrum. Some nights I'm like, Oh God, do I have to go through this again? You know, oh, it's so cold. I'm so tired, you know. <laughs> and there are other nights, particularly, you know, we had two weeks ago, that super moon where I lay and, like, you know, and the clock struck half 12 and I'm supposed to lead the audiences back and I'll give it another 10 minutes and another 10 minutes. And, you know, I just, you know, I would, I'd, I'd not, I couldn't say, I couldn't part from them. And that there's, you know, there is a, that's a drug-like quality. Um, and that dissolving, you know, it's sometimes it's a, an entire soul, self-dissolving. Sometimes I see it with people that you just see that sort of, how should I say, that sort of shell that people hold on to, just that little attrition that it gets into. People who lived hard lives of resistance. I'm a, you know, I'm a romantic and I'm a free-spirited, you know, let's sing and dance in, in Mother Nature. And, I, you know, I've had lots of time to practice it and laugh at myself about it and 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 not care. And And some people are coming with a lot of resistance and the nightingale just has that ability to find the cracks, let the, the yeah, let the light through inside. Describe something um, about the way the nightingale sings, um, which was about silence, that there is as much power to the silence in the nightingale song as there is to the the notes that it sings, um, and that it taught you about the great art of decorating silence, a phrase I liked very much. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's it's the it's the kind of unspoken rule of what unaccompanied singing is, and 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 the British tradition, and very much the American Anglo-Irish tradition, Scots Anglo-Irish tradition of a folk song that went over to the Americas was very much about solo unaccompanied. The Americans put a bit of instrumentation, fiddle and banjo to it. But in Great Britain, one singer, one song. And the space you held as a singer is 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 uh, all about the gaps you leave because that's the orchestration, that's the arrangement, that's where the, the listener can enter in. Um, that's the invitation. And I, learning from those old singers, you know, I really... I learned a lot in that um, in that art, and here was the nightingale doing exactly the same thing, even better with such grace. So that's that's the timing that he leaves between expressions was formidably brave, and in that space, so much is happening. Although it's silence, you know, it, it's a, a very rich, um, a very rich and fertile place for the imagination for listening deeper into the places that one never knew they could hear inside and outside. Um, and the nightingales are doing it with great intention. There's, this is not just because that's the way it is. There is a reason why they're leaving those spaces and I can conject what they are, but there's a lot more than we'll ever know of why they're singing the way they do. When I was uh, younger, before I got involved in filmmaking, I was a, a, a jazz musician, and and uh, one of the great lessons I learned, or tried to learn, I should say, um, was when I was sh told, you know, it's not the notes that that matter; it's the space around the notes that you you leave. That's what creates a deeper relationship with with you know what you're trying to express. It's no when to shut up, really. <laughs> but but also another another thing that my teacher taught me, which was always there, and it's an old uh, you know adage that you have two ears and one mouth, and you should use them in those proportions. Um, and and I like that that actually in that space of silence, there's that opportunity for listening, and you receive so much more than when you're just you know broadcasting. Uh, that's a, a very sacred ratio there. That there's a space for communion in the silence more so than there is necessarily in the notes themselves. Yeah, yeah. There, There's a question you, you ask in the book. Um, it's a big question and, and one that obviously haunts you a great deal. Uh, and that is, will the next generation be able to hear the nightingales? Mm. <sighs> this is in our hands. Um, uh, one can be scientific about this um, and look at models of decline. And okay, so when I say next generation, I'm I'm speaking specifically for for people in in England because they only live in 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 the very southeast part of England. And they're declining at a rate of like eighty seven percent a year. So we're expecting thirty five years they might be gone. They may not because maybe they'll cling on. But actually the you know, the, the wider issue for them, which is recent research, which concerns me more than anything, which is actually the, although we have the highest rate of nature depletion in the UK, in, in Europe, uh, we're one of the worst countries in the world for deforestation relative to the amount of ancient woodland we have. We are criminal in what we're doing to our land. We have so little left, yet we're destroying it so viciously and, and uh, uncaringly. And that's a big problem for the birds. But actually, I think where the greatest issue is coming from is their wintering grounds in sub-Saharan Africa, the intensification of agriculture and also the heating up there and what that's going to do to their their winter life. Um, and actually, if they don't fatten up to make that journey back, they can't return. And that worries me more than anything because that's the global issue. It's not just about, you know, being more messy and allowing more scrub to develop and creating nightingale habitat, you know, which is a wonderful thing because it's good for all birds. But actually what we're looking at for our migrant species is a situation where they simply don't have a home. It's a migrant crisis. It's going to be replicated in the human existence. So in some ways, of course, I, I'm devastated at the prospect that my, you know, my children and my children's children won't get to experience what I have but I also know that the the other side of that, there's there's worse things they're going to face. The art that can emerge and the ways that we we 
practicing our adoration of this bird today will be held on as uh, as available for that generation to experience as much as is possible in what the what the power of the nightingale was if there ever becomes a was Towards the end of the book, you speak about, I guess, living in an age of extinction. And you use the, the term solastalgia, which is a term I, I, I guess you could say I painfully resonate with. Maybe that's what we all do. That's what it kind of embodies. And, and also the term endlings, which is what you use to describe the last of a species that is going extinct. And, you know, in these two strands of your work, um, collecting songs from singers who were the last of their line, and singing with nightingales, knowing that they may not be singing in England in 30 years, you know, change perhaps the way you see uh, extinction. Although there is obviously the tremendous loss that we're going to be facing individually and collectively as we embrace this apocalyptic time of climate breakdown, there, there is also the ever-present need to fill our hearts with the richness our lands offer. It's almost like you ended the book with that um, call. So I wonder if you could speak to that uh, a bit. Yeah, you know, what we're dealing with here, and we're all dealing with it, and I know your listenership and you are commonly encountering this, the, the concept of grief. And how do we celebrate grief and learn to learn to dance with it and nature and these practices, my sing with nightingales, is one of many ways that we can practice a an entwinement uh, with with the natural world that can can help us identify where that grief is. I feel the grief with the nightingale all the time, not just about his extinction, but knowing that the end of May he'll stop singing and then fly off, leave me like a forlorn lover. There's grief every, all throughout it, and but also the grief comes with great joy because that is what nature does the exuberance is there as a way of supporting us and be allowing the sentimentality to be shared and consoled and I, it makes me sound like a very morose person because <laughs> i'm not but actually i you know i remember this from a, a wonderful um account written in the vancouver museum of anthropology perhaps and it's the Nuchan elders was asked this question in an interview and I really loved it which was what would the ancestor it was in referring to the potlatch what would they say if the ancestors came back today in like the 1990s and saw the potlatches today and and he said I think the ancestors and I, it's a question I often ask to the elders what would your ancestors think and I use that question was what I says well I think they'd seen it it all changed a little bit but they say, but you're still celebrating the good times and making the best of what you have. I'm misquoting here. And I kind of feel like that nature is, is saying, you know, just just be joyful, be playful, be be here, be present in us. And, and yeah, t take what you will respectfully and give back. And that's the best thing you can do. Mm. I feel that was immensely inarticulate. <laughs> but. Is there a song that you could perhaps leave us with that embodies some of what you just described? That joy that is present in the relationship with the living world? Yeah, there is. And it's a, it's another of Stanley's songs. And I'll sing just the verse of it. It's called Lovely Molly. And it sings of the, the mavis, which is Scottish, for the song thrush, the turtle dove, and the nightingale. Um, and it's a love song of a parting lover saying farewell as he goes off to war to fight for the for the country and will probably never return and it's that saying goodbye um but also with that with just this sense of hope um <clears throat> so here's the chorus of lovely molly oh molly lovely molly I delight in your charms 
and there's many a long night you have laid in my arms, and if ever I return again, it will be in the spring when the mavis and the turtle dove and the nightingale Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. A real privilege, um, a joy to, to be in conversation with you and to hear you sing. Thank you, Emmanuel. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. of Calliopeia Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our new theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas and Logan Stanley. This podcast is edited by Ben Solitianu and Devin Teleton. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, Order our new print edition and check out more of our stories. Visit emergencemagazine.org.